The deadly fires in Maui have left many people injured. Others have fled their homes without their prescription drugs. The people that have chronic diseases, now it's been days without medicine, so that chronic problem can become acute. More on one doctor's efforts to get help to those in need coming up. It's Monday, August 14th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. In Kansas, a police force raided a newspaper and a publisher's home over the weekend. The police department has faced pushback over the event, tied to a restaurant owner's claim that the paper invaded her privacy. And July was the hottest month ever recorded on Earth, according to federal climate scientists. It's a stark reminder that humans are rapidly warming up the planet by burning fossil fuels. These stories, the numbers from Wall Street, and the forecast are coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia, is hearing evidence in Prosecutor Fonnie Willis' investigation into whether former President Donald Trump and some of his allies broke state laws as they attempted to get Georgia's results of the 2020 presidential election overturned. There are reports that at least a couple of witnesses for the prosecution may have been on site today. This week's decision could result in an indictment against the Republicans seeking to get elected president again in 2024. Georgia Public Broadcasting Stephen Fowler recaps some of the main aspects of the case prosecutors are arguing. We've got hearings where Trump allies falsely told lawmakers they could pick their own presidential electors, a plan that saw 16 Republicans falsely claim to be the state's official electors, the effort to unlawfully copy election data from a rural Georgia county and a pressure campaign against sitting officials to change the outcome. Stephen Fowler reporting. Rescuers on Maui are focused today on finding the people who've been unaccounted for since wildfires fueled by strong winds swept through the historic town of Lahaina last week. The death toll stands at 96. Local officials say they expect that number to increase with each passing day. Data from wastewater surveillance and hospital admissions point to a rise in summer cases of COVID-19. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports a new booster is expected out this fall. The CDC says hospital admissions among people with COVID have risen slightly. Infectious disease expert Bruce Farber of Northwell Health, which has about 20 hospitals in the New York area, says most but not all patients who've tested positive for COVID in their hospitals are in for another reason, such as for a surgery or an injury. Very, very few are critically ill with COVID and very few are dying with COVID. A newer variant called EG5 is now circulating widely and a new booster is expected out in early fall to help protect against a potential winter wave. In past years, January and February have been peak season for the virus. Alice Aubrey, NPR News. The U.S. is announcing another weapons package for Ukraine valued at $200 million. Here's NPR's Greg Myrie. The latest U.S. military support includes mine-clearing equipment for Ukrainian forces struggling to advance through Russian minefields in the south and east of the country. In addition, the U.S. is sending more ammunition for HIMARS, the rocket system that allows Ukrainians to strike Russian positions far beyond the front lines. The U.S. is also sending more missiles for the Patriot air defense system. Ukraine faces daily Russian airstrikes, including a barrage on the southern port city of Odessa. The Ukrainian military says it shut down all of the more than 20 missiles and drones that targeted the city. However, falling debris injured three people. Greg Myrie, NPR News. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Healy administration is asking the federal government to phase in the replacement of two bridges that span the Cape Cod Canal. It would start with the Sagamore Bridge. More now from WBUR's Steve Brown. In a statement, Governor Healy says the first phase will enable the state to get shovels in the ground quickly on the Sagamore Bridge and lay the groundwork for rebuilding the Bourne Bridge. Until now, the plan had been to seek replacement of the 88-year-old bridges simultaneously. The administration is finalizing an application to compete for $1.45 billion in federal funds. That application is due next week. The governor's statement says replacement of the Sagamore should go first because it carries more traffic and its connection to the Mid-Cape Highway plays a vital role in the Cape's economic viability. A spokeswoman for the governor stressed that they will still seek funding to replace both bridges, but that this is just the first phase. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Governor Maura Healy and other officials broke ground this afternoon on a new soldier's home in Holyoke. That's where a COVID-19 outbreak three years ago killed at least 76 veterans. The incident led to leadership changes at the home and reforms to the oversight of the state's two veterans' homes. The new Holyoke facility is expected to cost $482 million and will have 234 long-term care beds. It should be completed by the summer of 2028. A Quincy man has been ordered held without bail after he was charged with assaulting a woman on Columbus Avenue in Boston over the weekend. 35-year-old Amos Sykes is accused of grabbing the victim, forcing her to the ground, and then repeatedly punching her. Police say Sykes fled the scene but was soon caught. A motive for the attack is not known. The woman suffered non-life-threatening injuries. And 22 people displaced after a large sinkhole opened in Haverhill will be allowed to return to their homes Wednesday. Their five-unit apartment building was evacuated after a pipe burst during last week's heavy storms. Officials say that caused at least a million dollars in damage. The city is paying for residents to stay at a hotel until they can return home. Meantime, 32 residences and three businesses have also submitted claims to the city for potential state or federal assistance stemming from the storms. Claims are due in by Thursday. 84 degrees now, a gorgeous day out there. We should have, though, some rain clouds moving in overnight tonight. Maybe some showers by daybreak tomorrow, about 68 degrees. And then for tomorrow, rain, maybe a few thunderstorms pushed around by the wind. Only about 73 degrees tomorrow. By Wednesday, partly sunny skies should make it to the upper 70s. Again, 84 degrees in Boston at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Boston Lights, presented by National Grid, is back at Franklin Park Zoo. Experience hundreds of amazing lanterns nightly through October 29th, franklinparkzoo.org. And the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. In Hawaii, nearly 100 people are dead, a number that is sure to rise as the recovery effort continues. More than 2,700 structures have been destroyed, including the vast majority of homes, leaving many hundreds of people hunkered down in shelters. Nearly a week out from the massive wildfires that swept the island of Maui, the grim picture is now more clear. Residents are demanding answers about how the wildfires could have been so destructive. Here's Hawaii Governor Josh Green. There's a lot to share. There's a lot of information that people want. And to that end, I've authorized a comprehensive review of what happened in the early hours of the fire and the hours thereafter. 
We'll have more from Maui later in the show, including the story of a local doctor who's helping victims who survived the fires get the help they need from burn treatments to prescription medications. But first, to Marion, Kansas, a town of fewer than 2,000 residents, where the entire police force raided the newsroom of the only newspaper that covers the town. It's called the Marion County Record. The raid highlights the clash between law enforcement and the press there and has also sparked an outcry over a violations of press freedoms. Joining us now to talk about the story and the broader implications are NPR's Danielle Kay and NPR media correspondent David Folkenflake. Kay to both of you. Hi, Elsa. Danielle, I want to start with you because I know that you've been reporting the ins and outs of this story, and I understand that you are speaking with the paper's publisher. What is he telling you? Yeah, I am. So Eric Meyer is the publisher and co-owner of the Marion County Record. He says on Friday morning, police entered the newspaper's office and his 98-year-old mother's home where he was staying at the time. Officers took reporters' computers, cell phones, and other reporting materials. And Meyer's mother passed away the day after the raid. He thinks the stress of the raid contributed to her death. A county judge had signed off on a search warrant for this raid, but how the police got that warrant does raise some red flags. The warrant says that the police are investigating the newsroom for identity theft involving a local restaurant owner. The paper was looking into an allegation about her driving record, and they never actually published anything. Law enforcement hasn't released the document that would explain the basis for this raid. And my conversations with the paper's publishers suggest the motivation for this raid could go far beyond what the warrant claims. Here's Meyer talking about how his newsroom was looking into allegations of misconduct against the police chief before he was sworn into the job on June 1st. It was alarming, to say the least, that the number of people who came forward uh, and some of the allegations that they made were fairly serious. And I do want to stress here that Meyer doesn't know if the raid was connected to his paper's reporting on the police chief's background. They didn't end up publishing any of the allegations against him, but Meyer says the chief knew about their reporting and he allegedly threatened to sue the paper if they did publish anything. Has there been any response from the police chief or the department? Well, in a statement, the police chief justified the raid, saying there are exceptions to established protections for newsrooms, and this case was one of them. I also asked the chief if he knew that he was being investigated by the newspaper and if the raid on the paper was linked to that investigation, Mm -hmm. but he uh, he declined to comment on either of those questions. Okay. Well, David, let's go to you because I want to understand the bigger picture here. Like, how common is it for journalists to be raided by law enforcement? So you've heard there from Danielle about the, the intimate and human scale, small town newspaper, uh, small town uh, uh, police force. But, you know, when we think about hearing about such things, you think about hearing about this in the Philippines. You think about hearing about this in Turkey or Russia yeah, uh, you know, under somewhat repressive regimes. Not America. If you pull back 30,000 feet, this stuff doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen for a reason. You know, there about uh, over two decades ago, there was a case involving the Stanford Daily Newspaper, uh, which was taken all the way to the Supreme Court where uh, police officials wanted and took, they came with a warrant and took, uh, without warning, all this uh, film of uh, pictures taken at a protest. They wanted to see if they could prove protesters had committed crimes, particularly uh, apparently against law enforcement Mm -hmm. officials. And they sued. And as 
Supreme Court said basically, look, this kind of violates First Amendment protections to some degree. It violates Fourth Amendment constitutional protections under unreasonable search and seizure. But there aren't certain kinds of explicit protections against getting information about third parties. Congress came back the next year and said, we're going to write that in. So there's going to be some uh, some tough protections. If you think in almost two decades later in San Francisco, 2019, a freelance reporter named Brian Carmody was raided by police. They had a warrant as well. Uh, they came with sledgehammers uh, to get his stuff, to take his uh, his devices from home. And what happened was that San Francisco had to pay and agreed to pay him $369,000 because they violated his rights. Hmm. What the rules of the road are now is that you're required to essentially get a subpoena to ask for the information. Then subpoena is a legal request for information. Right. It slows the process down. You're former lawyer, you know this. Mm -hmm. It gives their lawyers a chance to challenge it, to test whether or not the basis on which this information is being desired is valid and whether they should have this ability to do that, to, to okay. go and get the info. But there was no subpoena here. So what does it tell you, David, that this raid in Marion, Kansas happened anyway on this newspaper? Well, even the FBI doesn't just go out and raid newspapers and the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal is going to report about stuff involving the Pentagon or National Security Agency, things that are national security secrets. They don't just go raid it. They challenge it. They demand information. Sometimes they go after leaks. And you've seen the Trump years. That's been uh, pursued with even more of a vengeance. But they don't simply go out and wantonly take devices, go through newsrooms, stomp loudly. And what you saw here, I think, was a very strong exercise of power in a very small town. And that is not only chilling to reporters who want to go after local officials, hold them accountable, but I think it's intended to do so in the absence of other information and evidence that hasn't so far come mm -hmm. to light. Okay. Well, Danielle, to you now. At this point, where do we go from here in Marion? Well, lots of national organizations are speaking out against this, and an attorney in Kansas City is also helping the paper challenge the raid in court. And on top of that, the paper is still planning to publish this Wednesday, even though journalists' personal computers are gone, their cell phones are gone, the computers they use at the office for reporting and editing are gone. But despite all that, they say they're committed to still putting the paper out for the community. That is NPR's Danielle Kay and David Folkenflik. Thank you to both of you for your reporting. Thank you, Elsa. You bet. The official death toll has reached 96 in Maui after last week's devastating wildfires. Many more were injured, and some had to flee their homes without their prescription drugs. Getting victims the care they need has been difficult. NPR's Jason DeRose reports on one doctor who's been trying to help however he can. The clinic is called MODO, which stands for Mobile Doctor, Specialty Urgent Care. I'm uh, Dr. Reza Dinesh. People just call me uh, Dr. Rez. Two decades in emergency medicine, a dozen on Maui. A few years ago, Dr. Rez opened this storefront clinic and outfitted a van as a mobile office. Now he makes house calls and offers free medical care through his nonprofit, MODO for the People. So anybody that can't afford, or don't have, have access to come to a clinic, um, we go out to help them. And that came in clutch during this disaster because I literally thought I was just going there to check out the scene and write some prescriptions. Uh, and then I realized basically Lahaina was hit with like a nuclear bomb. Among those accompanying Dr. Rez was nurse Mary-Kate Larimer. It looked like something out of like a zombie movie. You know, they're completely in shock. They're, you know, covered in soot, you know, head to toe completely black. When they talk, you, you know, their mouths are bright red. 
Red because of burns from the intense heat, the wildfires even affected some of Dr. Reza's employees. Office admin Jody Lewick had to evacuate. On that first night, she and her two sons slept in their car. We're kind of a community in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, right? <laughs> and when you're outside, resources are lessened. You learn to be more dependent on people. You know, I will tell you, they say with the island that it wraps its arms around you. Dr. Rez personifies those arms. And on this day, he's heading to an evacuation center. He has a goal. Getting the people that have chronic diseases, they're not acute. But now it's been days without medicine, so that chronic problem can become acute. So people with heart failure, uh, somebody as simple as I need my bipolar meds. He and a volunteer load up the van with some food and water to give away in addition to the free medical care. I designed this Ford Sprinter just by myself because the ambulances are set to see like multiple people the way it's. It doesn't feel like homey. This thing just feels like home. I have a little like little Persian rug even. But at the shelter, Dr. Rez gets a very different reception than the one he was expecting. I want to find out though, for you guys, what's going on here? Volunteer manager Vesta Sung says the Red Cross has taken over and is clamping down. This shelter is a Red Cross shelter, so. Uh, right now, we can't have you servicing our clients, okay, because you haven't been vetted through the Red Cross. Dr. Rez works his contacts, other doctors here, the head of the state medical board over the phone, but no luck. So he decides to redirect. He'll try to get back to Lahaina. But then everyone's phones start vibrating all at once. It's an emergency alert. There's a traffic fatality. So there's a car accident, and usually when that happens, they have to secure the scene and investigate. Which means the road to Lahaina is closed for the rest of the day. I'm feeling a little drained, and you know you want to help, and that your hands are tied because you're trying to organize and do it the right way. Frustrated, yes, but not deterred. He tries again the next day, and he'll try again tomorrow because Dr. Reza Dinesh makes house calls to wherever his patients need him. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Maui. All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for listening this afternoon. Coming up, Hollywood actors are on strike, but the union is allowing some production to continue. So who gets a pass and why? That story is coming up about 15 minutes on WBUR. The week has started on Wall Street with an upswing. The Dow rose less than a tenth of a percent. Tech stocks made a comeback, lifting the S&P up more than a half percent, and the Nasdaq up by more than a full percent. J.P. Morgan Chase & Company is shutting down 21 First Republic Bank branches across the country, including two in Massachusetts. Reuters reports the local branches are both in Boston, in Post Office Square, and Back Bay. They will close in mid-September. Three branches in Cambridge, Wellesley, and Boston will remain open. J.P. Morgan Chase acquired the failed bank earlier this year. It's 419. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru, featuring the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. It's a Subaru summer. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org.
In the forecast, 84 degrees now in the Boston area. Windy and warm this afternoon and evening. Tonight, cloudy skies with rain by morning. The upper 60s for a low. Tomorrow should feel a little bit raw with rain and thunderstorms intermittently throughout the day. Should be windy. Highs not very high at all, reaching only the low 70s tomorrow. And for Wednesday, a little bit milder in the upper 70s with a mix of sunshine and clouds. 84 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Former President Donald Trump could be indicted again this week, this time in Georgia, over efforts to subvert the the state's 2020 election result. The person responsible for pursuing that case is Fonnie Willis, the district attorney in Fulton County. Willis is known for her wide-reaching racketeering cases and making history as the first black woman elected top prosecutor in Atlanta. WABE's Sam Greenglass reports. Orange security barriers now surround the Fulton County Courthouse as prosecutors inside prepare what could be a historic case focused on a former president. But as this new security took effect downtown, Willis spent a recent Saturday at a local park handing out book bags to kids heading back to school. We want people to not only see us as being those people that put their nephews or their sons in jail, but that we're serious about being a part of the community. Willis was elected in 2020 and took office just a few days before that infamous phone call when Trump asked Georgia's Secretary of State to find him votes. Two and a half years after that phone call spurred Willis's investigation, she says her office is ready to go and has strongly signaled she'll ask a grand jury to charge multiple people. I'm living my dream. There's a lot of people as smart as Fonnie Willis, but somehow the citizens of Fulton County selected me. I'm still very humbled. And as long as I sit here, I'm going to do what's needed to keep this community safe. Willis got her start as a prosecutor in the Fulton DA's office and first made her name prosecuting a cheating scandal in Atlanta public schools. The sweeping racketeering case resulted in 11 convictions. Willis has said she's a fan of using Georgia's broad RICO law to prosecute complex webs of criminal activity. She's deployed RICO to go after gangs and is expected to use it for a Trump indictment, too. At least I believe she was called for a time such as this. That's former DeKalb County prosecutor Gwen Keyes Fleming, who's known Willis for two decades. But not everyone is praising Fulton County's district attorney. Some have questioned whether devoting resources to potentially prosecuting a former president comes at the cost of resolving other cases. And former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig recently suggested Willis's investigation could undermine the federal election interference case against Trump. Willis's investigation has been unforgivably sloppy, hampered by prosecutorial incompetence, and hopelessly tainted by her own self-interested politics. Honig notes that Willis, a Democrat, was disqualified from prosecuting a fraudulent elector because she hosted a fundraiser for his political opponent. Trump has unsuccessfully filed formal motions to disqualify Willis, but he's also gone further, disparaging her at rallies as the young racist in Atlanta. 
Gwen Keys Fleming says it's not easy being the first. Like Willis, she was also the first Black woman elected district attorney in her county. While we may be presented with headwinds that are different, all of us were more than prepared to step into the role, Fonnie included, and we all honored our oath, and Fonnie will do the same. Willis says she's never doubted whether the Trump probe was worth pursuing. Absolutely not. There are some moments that are troubling and concerning, but those moments are based on like some of the racist comments that get sent to me. She says she's received numerous threats. We have people that are still so ignorant, but that reality will not deter me from my work. Nearby the pavilion where Willis is handing out backpacks, East Point resident Gail Alexander says it felt like a slap in the face when Trump and his allies tried to interfere with Georgia's election result. Oh, it made me mad. Really, really mad. Alexander says she's grateful her district attorney took on this investigation, but she's not confident anyone will ultimately be held accountable. I'm going to be honest with you. If it does, it will surprise me. Truly. If a grand jury does return an indictment this week, the path ahead will be long and uncertain, both for Fonnie Willis and potentially former President Trump. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. Colombian singer Carol G. is out with a brand new surprise album. It's called Menana Será Bonito Bichota Season. It's a follow-up to her record-breaking February release, which was simply called Menana Será Bonito. This new album features remixes as well as brand new music and comes as Carol G. kicks off her first U.S. stadium tour. NPR's alt-Latino host Ana Maria Sayer has this review. So I wasn't sure what to think about this one because I feel like generally when an artist comes straight out of the gate with a kind of bonus record after they've released a big album, it doesn't quite hit all the time. But I must say, Carol G coming back with her bonus Bichota season is actually quite fun. She really does a lot of sonically divergent things on it that she didn't quite get to cover on the first record, although that too hit a lot of good points. And so uh, this one was really fun to listen to. A lot of very exciting collaborations. That was Provenza, the Tiesto Club remix. I first heard this track when I was biking home from work and I was like, I need to turn around right now and get myself to the club. This is such a fun song. Provenza has been a single off of the album for a while now. It's had two separate summers that it's been able to run in, and it's always been kind of, I think to me, a track for dancing, for being out with friends, for summertime. And the Tiesto Club remix really takes it to a whole nother level. I must say, I would not have expected to love it this much, but I do love how she's been playing a little bit more in the EDM space. A lot of Latin artists have been, and something about Latin rhythms and a nice EDM bass drop just actually marries perfectly, especially on this track.
estás provocando aunque lo haces sin querer Ya por ti pregunté y hace más de un mes That was the collaborative diss track coming from Carol G and Peso Pluma. I would love to tell you the name, but I can't say it on the air. This collab has been teased for quite some time now, and this is absolutely not what I thought would come out of the two coming together. Peso Pluma has been notoriously open to doing reggaeton, but most of the time sticks in the regional lane, so to hear the two of them together on this track was really cool. His vocals work really, really well on a reggaeton track. They're so unique, they're always interesting to listen to, and the two of them together I just actually really enjoyed. That was in here's alt-Latino host Ana Maria Sayer. Carol G's new album, Mañana Será Bonito Bichota Season, is out now. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Sales of elderberries exploded during the COVID-19 pandemic. The fruit is often used as a nutritional supplement. Well, now there's debate among growers over broadening the crop's market even more. That story coming up in about 10 minutes on WBUR. Coming to City Space Friday, August 25th, the Mortified podcast featuring true stories of teen angst told live from the adults who experienced them. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. In the forecast, today may turn out to be the mildest day of the week, 84 degrees now. Clouds should move in tonight. Temperatures in the upper 60s and clouds and rain in a big way tomorrow. Gusty winds too. Temperatures around the low 70s. This is 90.9 WBUR, 84 degrees now in the Boston area. The time is 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs, cambridgeculinary.com or on their app. And A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com As a child, Pigeon Pagonis was told a lie, that they were a girl, but they'd never go through puberty like other girls. So I always knew there was something different about me, but I never had the language for what was different because no one wanted to give me the truth. Now, Pagonis has published a memoir of their journey, seizing the truth and celebrating intersex identity. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Maui, a restaurant called Fleetwoods on Front Street in Lahaina is one of hundreds of buildings that were totally destroyed by wildfires last week that ravaged the historic town dating back to the 1800s. The whole town of Lahaina is no more. Thought of it becoming some form of playground with, with no reference to the dignity of that town would be, to me, would be abhorrent. The restaurant filled with Fleetwood Mac memorabilia was a total loss. The band's drummer, 
That was Mick Fleetwood. He's one of Lahaina's most famous residents. Fleetwood has lived in Lahaina for several decades and says his top priority now is the safety of staff and team members. Meanwhile, authorities say two fires are still actively burning on the island and have yet to be contained. So far, the death toll stands at 96 people, the deadliest wildfire in the U.S. in more than a century. In Atlanta, cooling centers are opening up across the metro area as most of Georgia is under an excessive heat warning today. From member station WABE, Lily Oppenheimer has more. Cooling center locations include libraries and recreation centers, where specific areas will open up for people to come inside and escape the heat. One metro Atlanta county, DeKalb, is even waiving public pool fees. The heat warning is in effect until this evening. The National Weather Service warns of dangerously hot conditions, with heat index values up to 110 degrees. And through tomorrow, that could get up to 112 degrees in central and south Georgia. Record high temperatures have baked the south this summer. And experts say extreme heat is here to stay. For NPR News, I'm Lily Oppenheimer in Atlanta. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A group of pork producers will be in court next month as it tries to block new regulations on livestock in Massachusetts. The September 6th hearing comes about two weeks after the ballot measure voters approved in 2016 goes into effect. The new rules require that pork sold in the state comes from pigs raised in large enough spaces. The lawsuit was filed by the pork producer Triumph Foods and several farmers. They say the law will place an added burden on pork producers from other states who will also have to meet the standards to sell pork in Massachusetts. The head of a group that advocates for public transportation is calling for Governor Maura Healey to do more to address problems at the long-ailing MBTA. WBR's Rob Lane has more. The T's issues are most glaring on the red line, where data from Transit Matters shows trains are running slower and less frequently than a year ago. The nonprofit's executive director, Jared Johnson, lives along the red line. He tells Radio Boston he doesn't expect the governor to fix the T overnight, but he'd like to see some progress. At least on some key things like transparency, like giving folks a timeline for when they can expect to have you know, better transit service. I think this administration really severely underestimates how little trust there is in the T. Healy's been in office since January. Her pick, Philip Eng, took over as the T's general manager in April. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. In her inaugural address, Healy pledged to hire 1,000 new T employees by next January. So far this year, the agency has increased its headcount by just over 300 workers. A female humpback whale is safe after she was found entangled in fishing gear off Cape Ann over the weekend. The whale, named Pinball, was with her eight-month-old calf when boaters spotted her Saturday morning. It took crews from the Center for Coastal Studies in Provincetown several hours to distangle her. Pinball's calf was kept keeping its distance during the rescue effort, except to nurse. It was not injured. Both whales are reportedly doing well. In sports, David Krejci of the Bruins is retiring. The center spent 16 years with the Bees. He also played his 1,000th game with the team. Krejci's retirement comes on the heels of a similar announcement from a teammate Patrice Bergeron. The former team captain announced his retirement last month. In the forecast... Windy and warm this afternoon and evening. Tonight, cloudy skies with rain by morning in the upper 60s. Tomorrow should feel a little bit raw and pretty wet. Rain and thunderstorms off and on throughout the day should be windy with highs only in the low 70s. 84 degrees still in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp. 
committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Last month was the hottest July recorded on Earth by a long shot. I was feeling it. I know you were too. This is all according to official data released today by federal climate scientists. Rebecca Hersher from NPR's Climate Desk is here to make sense of yet another broken temperature record. Hey, Rebecca. Hey. Okay, so what exactly do these latest numbers show? So they show that July was extremely warm here on Earth. (laughs) Here are the actual numbers. This July was almost half a degree Fahrenheit hotter than any previous July, going back to 1850. This is how the chief scientist at NOAA, Sarah Kapnick, explained it. That may not sound like a lot, but the margin for most global records is on the order of a hundredth of a degree or two. So last month was way, way warmer than anything we've ever seen. And in fact, it's so much warmer that it actually surprised scientists, which really doesn't happen that often. (laughs) Um, Russell Vose is one of those scientists at NOAA. I am rarely surprised. That's what my friends tell me. Okay. (laughs) He has kind of a a flat affect. Uh, (laughs) Vose has spent decades keeping track as temperatures just march higher and higher. That is his job. He says his motto is keep calm, carry on. Because our job is to keep score. Um, but sometimes you get a little surprised with the score, and I was not expecting July to be this much of a record setter. You can kind of hear it, right? He's worried, yeah. and he's also worried about the long-term trend. You know, the last nine years are the hottest nine years ever recorded. Okay, I get all these records are getting broken, but why was this July so much hotter? So there are a few reasons. The really big one is human-caused climate change, which is making the whole Earth heat up really quickly. There was record-breaking heat, these heat waves in July around the world, so across South America and Africa and Asia and Europe, even in Antarctica. So the whole world was really hot. Here in the U.S., four states had their hottest July on record. But then there's also the oceans. We have to remember that there's a lot of the Earth where humans don't live. About 40% of the world's oceans are experiencing marine heat waves right now. Mm. And one reason for that is El Nino, which is this cyclic climate pattern that means warmer ocean water in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. Okay, well then, what about August? Like, what should we expect this month and for the rest of the year? So that's where the news gets actually even more sobering, if that's possible. Um, El Nino is getting stronger, and it will almost certainly continue well into next year. So that means even more heat in the oceans, which drives up temperatures everywhere. It's very possible that 2023 could end up being the hottest year on record. We learned that today from this latest data, and that 2024 could be even hotter than that, actually. Um, And all that extra heat is really dangerous. You know, we're living... With it right now, it makes droughts worse. It raises wildfire risk. It makes big, powerful hurricanes more likely to form. It kills marine animals, sometimes irreversibly. Of course, the solution is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions right now by a lot. Yeah. That would slow down the warming. Otherwise, this year will actually be comparatively cool by the middle of the century. Imagine that. 
That is NPR's Rebecca Hersher. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thanks. The double strike by screenwriters and actors has almost completely shut down Hollywood production this summer. Their union rules say they're not allowed to write, act in, or promote their movies and shows. But as NPR's Mandalit Del Barco reports, the actors' union SAG-AFTRA is allowing some independent productions to proceed. And just a note here, many of us at NPR are members of SAG-AFTRA, but under a different contract, so we are not on strike. So far, SAG-AFTRA has given the green light to more than 200 productions, including the Sigourney Weaver horror movie Dust Bunny, Rebel Wilson's Brideheart, and Anne Hathaway's Mother Mary. And Glenn Close can shoot the next season of the Israeli-produced TV series Tehran. Unless we are completely transparent with each other, it will end very badly for us. The stars of Michael Mann's new film, Ferrari, Adam Driver, and Penelope Cruz will be allowed to work the red carpet at the Venice Film Festival, and actors there can promote Luc Besson's new movie, Dogman. You're insane. Thank you. I caught up with sag Actors National Executive Director Duncan Crabtree Ireland on the picket line outside Disney Studios in Burbank. They're not waivers. We've been trying to get people to stop using that term because really the interim agreement is a full-on collective bargaining agreement. Crabtree Ireland says in order to be approved, productions have to agree to the same terms the union demanded from the major studios before contract negotiations broke off on July 12th. That includes 11% wage increases, protections against artificial intelligence, and higher residuals when streamers reuse content. If independent producers are willing and able to sign this agreement and produce projects under it, it really directly defeats any assertions that our proposals are unrealistic. Well, if they're realistic enough that independent producers who don't have the bankroll of the studios can produce projects on them, how unrealistic are they really? He says before approving them, the union's contract experts vet each production to make sure they are truly independent from the studios they're striking against. They do things like review corporate documents and copyright chains. He also says some of the independent productions are being made in other countries with different labor laws where they can't implement the strike. That means Jenna Ortega and Paul Rudd are allowed to film the comedy horror movie Death of a Unicorn in Hungary. But some union members don't like this. On Instagram, actress Sarah Silverman posted her concerns. So you're just letting people make movies and movie stars are making movies that you know the goal is to sell them to streaming. But the streaming service has to agree, yeah, that's called the end of the strike, which is now going to be probably exponentially prolonged because they have Movie stars making movies. Today, the union revised its policy going forward to include only productions not covered by the Writers Guild of America, which is also on strike. Outside Disney Studios last week, union members walked and rode horses on the picket line. Among them were actors Lana Gauthier and Jeff Kay, who say no one should get permission to work while there's a strike. It's either we're all in or we're not. Everybody should have just dropped where they were and walked off to make the statement because right now the studios are being rewarded with finishing up this content. And so this content will probably be able to keep them going a little bit longer while we're out on strike. Viola Davis was one of the people who said that she would not cross the picket line, so she stopped production. Uh, Much respect to her for that. I support that. Brad Pitt put a kabush on his production in Bulgaria, so I respect that as well. 
Oscar winner Troy Kotzer was also on the Disney picket line. Through an ASL interpreter, he explained that he worked on a production in Canada that has an interim agreement to finish up. I can understand a bit of the controversy, but for me personally, I've always supported independent films because they're not under any of the major studios. And so these are real people making passionate productions from their heart and their creativity. And they're trying to show their art. SAG-AFTRA says if any streaming platform does eventually pick up one of the projects with an interim agreement, they'll be on the hook for paying the actors more. The union leaders say if only the big Hollywood studios would agree to do the same, the strike would end. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Blueberries, strawberries, and raspberries are top picks in the big business of berries. And now a tiny fruit, perhaps less well-known, might be getting a bigger share of the limelight. The COVID-19 pandemic saw a large increase in sales of elderberries. And now growers of this crop are at a crossroads, trying to decide whether to go big or stay small, as Jonathan All of Harvest Public Media reports. Elderberries are pea-sized, a little sweet and a little tart. They're also packed with antioxidants and have become popular as a nutritional supplement touted as a way to minimize cold and flu symptoms. Patrick Byers is a horticulturalist with the University of Missouri. He says elderberry products are a $320 million a year business. We've seen an explosive growth in the production and we've seen an explosive growth in the development of markets for this crop. Byers says while nutritional supplements are the biggest market for elderberries, in recent years they found use in flavoring beer and wine, as a natural food coloring, and in jams and jellies. And that's meant an increase in elderberry farms. Alan Helland is walking through his farm in central Missouri. He planted rows of these eye-high shrubs four years ago. In most ways, he's a typical elderberry farmer, so pretty small scale. It's a portion of my farm income. Two and a half acres, a new planting, you know, it wouldn't come up to a living. It's hard to pin down how much land in the U.S. is dedicated to elderberry farms. But Missouri leads the country with 400 acres. But that's much less than even one modest corn or soybean farm. But it is more land than the state has devoted to blackberries, strawberries, or blueberries. Helen says elderberry farmers have to do something else in addition, either growing other crops and raising livestock, or being their own manufacturers and marketers. If I was doing the secondary processing on all my own fruit here, then it very well might. While no one is making a living just as an elderberry farmer, some say it's possible. Some industry analysts are predicting demand for elderberry products could grow by more than 30% by the end of the decade. Chris Patton, president of the Midwest Elderberry Cooperative, says now is the time for elderberries to go big. And we have to be able to do large-scale commercialization so that we can meet the needs of the larger producers in, in the place of imports and uh, meeting the high-quality standards. Patton says replacing just half the number of elderberries imported into the U.S. with American-grown crop would be huge. He sees elderberries having the potential to be as big as cranberries and end up in energy drinks, nutrition bars, and many other products. But not all elderberry advocates agree. Heather Wilson is a sales and social media manager for River Hills Harvest, a Missouri-based company that makes elderberry products and gifts. 
She says going big presents big problems. That's going to drop our price. And again, you're going to have to farm 40 acres of elderberries to just make the same amount that you could make right now on two or three acres. She says the fruit's future is probably stronger in very small-scale producers who do more than just grow the crop. Think you pick farms and agritourism. But for farmers like Helen, having the option to either stay small or be part of something bigger might be the most promising way to develop elderberry markets and farms. It stays something that can be profitable for somebody on a couple acres, you know, kind of your thing. But then if it's organized correctly, I think there can also be the farmers who are doing, you know, 45 acres of it. Regardless of size, elderberry farmers are currently very busy. The berries have a very short period when they can be harvested, a two-week window that usually arrives in August. For NPR News, I'm Jonathan All in Rolla, Missouri. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the search and rescue efforts continue after the wildfires in Maui. In the forecast, clouds collecting this evening and tonight should be about 68 degrees overnight tonight. Maybe some showers by daybreak, about 68 again. Tomorrow, pack the umbrella. We could have rain and maybe a few thunderstorms pushed around by a strong wind, only about 73 degrees. By Wednesday, partly sunny skies should make it to the upper 70s. In the Boston area, now 84 degrees. David Krejci played 1,032 career games with the Boston Bruins, and that's where it ends. The 37-year-old center is retiring after 15 full seasons in the NHL. Krejci's retirement comes after the face of the franchise. Patrice Bergeron decided last month to call it a career. Their departures leave Boston without its two top centers after setting league records for most wins and points in a season. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Semester Off, a structured educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Fall semester starts September 18th. SemesterOff.com. As a child, Pigeon Pagonis was told a lie, that they were a girl, but they'd never go through puberty like other girls. So I always knew there was something different about me, but I never had the language for what was different because no one wanted to give me the truth. Now Pagonis has published a memoir of their journey, seizing the truth and celebrating intersex identity. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. This month marks two years since the Taliban seized control of Kabul as American military aircraft evacuated Afghans desperate to flee. Tens of thousands made their way to the United States. Some are still coming, and some pass through other countries along the way, even risking their lives as they cross the border from Mexico. NPR's Tom Bowman has the story of one family. And who's this little one? Yes, Yusra. This is my daughter. Yasra? Shafi Amani holds his three-year-old daughter Yasra outside the Casey Clinic in Alexandria, Virginia. She has a tumble of curls, large brown eyes that roll back at times. Her legs are limp, 
like a rag doll's. She can't walk or speak or chew food. A feeding tube pokes out of her stomach. Amani carries his daughter into their small apartment just down the street, inside a cluster of red brick buildings. Yusra was a healthy toddler when she and her family fled Afghanistan more than a year ago, taking a dirt road overland to Pakistan. That's where things got worse. When we were there, my daughter was, her fever goes up and we didn't understand at the beginning it's a stroke. After some tests, doctors told me this was a stroke. Amani got some medicine for his daughter, but decided to leave once more, getting a tourist visa for Mexico. I thought Mexico is best place for me. Arriving in Mexico City with his wife and daughter, they learned it wasn't enough for Yasra. Mexico was not safe place for me because it was very difficult. It was difficult because he didn't speak Spanish and there was a lack of medical care during their six-month stay. There was no assistance for my daughter. She needs some treatment, medication, doctors, and these things. He made a drastic choice. The family would be smuggled into the United States. In Mexicali, he found a contact who directed him to a hotel in a secretive woman who would help. $200 for each person. When we crossed the border, believe in me, that was the day, the hardest decision for me because for my daughter and for my wife and for, for my life. Two men then showed up and took them to a border wall nearly 30 feet tall and fashioned a kind of harness. Amani and his wife Frista just watched. In the wall, they put something like a rope. And after that, they told us, come first, my wife. So they pulled the, your wife first? Yeah, first she, after that, me and my daughter. You hold on yeah, to your daughter. Yeah. They were now inside the United States, just as the sun was setting, standing on a long stretch of deserted road. In front of them was the new river, one of the most polluted in the nation, teeming with industrial and farm runoff. They got ready to cross. We don't know what will happen, how much this water will be, the deep. Suddenly, they could see headlights coming down the road. It was a U.S. Border Patrol, and an officer waved them away from the river. Twenty feet away, he told me, stand up your hand, and do you have anything? I told him no. And we come, and we sit in the car. And after that, we went to the immigration camp. Amani never planned to come to the United States, even after the Taliban took over. Because they told us everything is normal, stay in Kabul. He's 33 now and was a building contractor working on Afghan army camps. Amani was afraid the government work would get him in trouble. He joined those who escaped to Pakistan and then went on to Mexico, and there was plenty of company. The Department of Homeland Security says in the past two years, more than 2,500 Afghans have made the trip and crossed into the U.S. But that illegal route means they could be turned away unless they can prove imminent danger or a medical emergency. U.S. immigration officials could quickly see there was a medical emergency with Yusra. When they told us, we are transferring your daughter, Believe in me as a father, and after that I understand they are human, and they will assist us, they will help us. After a month of treatment at a San Diego children's hospital, he decided to head to Northern Virginia, where there's a large Afghan community. They told us we 
contact with Children National Hospital in DC. After that, we will give the paper and uh, your documents and you will go. That's where the family met Dr. Karen Smith, a one-time army nurse turned pediatrician at Children's. She is a beautiful little girl that is suffering from a metabolic disorder. And with that, she's weak. She's unable to kind of move a lot for herself, unable to eat. Um, but also knowing that um, I would say there's such great hope if we manage that well. And what's the prognosis? So if it's managed well and early on, the prognosis can be very good of a very functional, you know, active individual. But she will have delays, um, most like motor she may have in learning. But what's beautiful about, you know, the child's brain, it's still growing and kind of um, making new cells. Smith and others, including nonprofit groups, faith-based groups like Christ Church in Alexandria, have helped the family settle in. She co-signed for his apartment which is financed by donations that run out in October. Friends provided dishes, silverware, a couch. The chaotic evacuation from Kabul airport two years ago, Smith says, hit her hard. She spent more than two decades as an army nurse. Her husband did combat tours in Iraq as a Green Beret. Frustration, it's just frustration, sadness. And again, I think what the army kind of puts into you is, you know, we're one family, we're team. And when you're in a foreign country, that they're supporting you, helping you stay safe. You don't leave your comrade behind. Afghans who arrived some two years ago in the American airlift got three months of government assistance, Medicaid, a work permit. Amani got none of that because he came here illegally. Back in April, he filed an application for asylum, a status that would allow him to work. Right now he has no social security number. So that, plus a work permit, a work permit would be great. Eureka Cooper, Amani's immigration lawyer, says even though he has an expedited process, Amani's still waiting for approval. She says with the backlog in asylum cases with the U.S. Customs and Immigration Service, it's uncertain how long it will take. Amani hopes to be granted asylum and become self-sufficient before too long. He plans to become a mechanic one day. And his wife, she dreams of becoming a doctor. But English classes will come first. Today I'm happy. I'm happy in the United States. Okay. Amani hands Yusra off to his wife and cuddles their second child, a chubby six-month-old with alert eyes. Her name is Ikra. Ikra means Reed. Reed. Her name is in defiance of a Taliban regime, he says, in its opposition to educating girls. Taliban closed the doors of school and therefore put her name Ikra. <laughs> Tom Bowman, NPR News, Alexandria, Virginia. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. 
From Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is 90.9 WBUR. Still pretty nice out there in the Boston area. Overnight tonight, though, clouds should collect. Temperatures should be about 68 degrees tonight. And for tomorrow, a change in the weather from today. Stormy and wet, windy and not too warm should only make it to the low 70s tomorrow. Wednesday should reach the upper 70s with sunshine and clouds sharing the sky. This is WBUR. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The official death toll has reached 96 in the wildfires on Maui, and there are worries that it could rise. Residents and rescue crews are sifting through the ashes. We'll hear from a Hawaii congresswoman about the search and rescue efforts. Today is Monday, August 14th, and this is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, some young women high school grads are heading to historically black colleges and universities in states where abortion is restricted or banned. So they're taking birth control with them. Many students here are just totally floored when I tell them that these laws are different in the states they're going to. Also, a Montana judge ruled in favor of 16 young people who had argued that a law that stops agencies from considering climate impact as the agencies issue permits violates their right to a clean and healthy environment. It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. As teams continue to scour fire-ravaged areas of Maui, Hawaii's governor is saying more victims are likely to be found as rescuers reach previously unreachable areas. The death toll there now stands at 96 after a wind-whipped wall of flames destroyed homes in the historic town of Lahaina. Deanne Criswell with the Federal Emergency Management Agency says recovery will be a lengthy process. The coming days... In the weeks, they're going to be tough. They're going to be difficult as people process what they have lost and what the road ahead looks like. But we are going to be with the people of Hawaii as I have committed to the governor every step of the way. FEMA is providing money to displaced residents along with food, water, and medical supplies. The Biden administration says it's seeking an additional $12 billion in aid for the state. Six white former law enforcement officers in Mississippi have pleaded guilty to state charges related to torturing two black men during a home raid. Will Stribling of Mississippi Public Broadcasting reports the officers had already pleaded guilty to federal civil rights charges. Michael Corey Jenkins and Eddie Terrell Parker were targeted because a white neighbor complained that two black men were staying at the home with a white woman, a childhood friend of Parker's. The former officers called themselves the Goon Squad. Prosecutors say they tortured the two men for 90 minutes, including shooting Jenkins in the mouth in a, quote, mock execution gone awry. Trent Walker is an attorney for Jenkins and Parker. We are ecstatic because, to my knowledge, never in the history of Mississippi have, in particular, white officers been held to account for brutality against black victims. Jenkins and Parker have since moved out of state due to death threats they've received since coming forward. For NPR News, 
I'm Will Stribling in Jackson. We've been hearing last month was the hottest July ever recorded on Earth. Now federal climate scientists publicly are concurring. NPR's Rebecca Hersher is more. July was nearly half a degree Fahrenheit hotter than the previous record. Sarah Kapnick is the chief scientist at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. That may not sound like a lot, but the margin for most global records is on the order of a hundredth of a degree or two. So last month was way, way warmer than anything we've ever seen. Federal climate scientists stress the warming trend is even more sobering. The last 533 consecutive months have been warmer than average. In the last nine years are the hottest ever recorded, going back to 1850. That's driving more intense heat waves, wildfires, and hurricanes around the world. If humans stop pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels, temperatures will stop rising so dramatically. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. Modest gains on Wall Street today. The Dow rose 26 points. The Nasdaq was up 143 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Harvard University says today it is making changes to its undergraduate application. The move follows the Supreme Court's decision in June that banned affirmative action. Harvard was a plaintiff in the case. The school has replaced an optional essay with five required questions that ask about a prospective student's life experiences in order to collect the same information from every applicant. College admissions counselor for the company Ivy Wise, Tiffany Blessing, says many schools are making similar changes. Because of that kind of allowance, I think that colleges or universities really took to changing their, their questions on the application so that they can continue to, to support diverse classes, particularly in this upcoming application season. Blessing says that schools will likely be to begin to add similar essay prompts as it relates to legacy admissions. Governor Moore Healy is changing strategy when it comes to replacing the aging Cape Cod bridges. Healy's office confirms the governor will pursue federal funds to replace just the Sagamore Bridge for now and pursue funding for the Bourne Bridge at a later time. Construction on the Sagamore alone is expected to cost more than $2 billion. The state and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers will reportedly begin a applying next week for about $1.5 billion in federal grants for the project. Construction could begin in 2028, and it would likely take at least seven years. People will now have access to free menstrual products at several Boston public libraries. They'll be available in men's, women's, and gender-neutral bathrooms at branches in Brighton, Codman Square, East Boston, Mattapan, Roxbury, and the North End. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu and the Mayor's Office of Women's Advancement partner with the library on the effort. The library will also offer workshops from the nonprofit Love Your Menses to teach about menstruation and remove its stigma. A new analysis from personal finance website WalletHub lists Massachusetts as the best country to live or best place to live in the country. The analysis compares states across five metrics, affordability, economy, education and health, and quality of life and safety. Massachusetts ranked the first in the country for education and health, but scored low marks for affordability at 44th. New Jersey, New Hampshire, New York, and Wyoming rounded out the top five best states. 84 degrees now, pretty fine day today. Look for clouds to move in overnight tonight, though 68 degrees tomorrow should be stormy for the day. Temperatures in the low 70s. 84 degrees in Boston now at 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. Search and rescue efforts continue on Maui after wildfires devastated much of the island last week. The fires have been largely contained, but the death toll is expected to rise in the coming days. And the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, estimates that it will cost more than $5 billion to rebuild the town of Lahaina. Congresswoman Jill Tokuda represents Hawaii in the United States House of Representatives and has been touring the devastated area. Congresswoman, welcome. Thank you. I want to start with the tour that we've just mentioned. Describe it for us. Where have you been? What have you seen? You know, they, they took us through Lahaina Town and walking through it was absolutely heartbreaking. A place where we're all familiar with. We've walked the streets. We've gone to the libraries. We've sat under the banyan tree completely decimated, burned, uh, to see cars as they were trying to flee that got stuck. And you know that the only other option was then to jump into the ocean on the other side. Um, It really hit home for you, the kind of devastation and horror that the people were feeling in those situations. And it was even more humbling to know that while many escaped and were trying to get home, now many never left. Uh, So it was definitely um, one of the most heartbreaking, definitely the most heartbreaking experiences I've ever had to experience uh, in my life. At this point, give us a status update. Do people there have access to water to drink, electricity? What is the state of services there? You know, for those individuals that, um, you know, are trapped on the other side uh, of Lahaina, access to power, um, water that is considered safe to drink is very limited. So you do have drops coming in for those types of things. Right now, the real struggle also is at the shelters where individuals did flee their homes. You have the added anxiety of not knowing the, where their loved ones are, if they're okay, their friends, their families, knowing their homes are likely completely destroyed. And, you know, fortunately, they are in those shelters where they have food and shelter. It really is the long-term recovery that we are very also worried about with these individuals, their mental health, um, temporary and then permanent shelter yeah. and housing that we will have to consider as well. And so it is a people are at various states of needing the most essential things. And the thing is, we know it's not just going to be days and weeks. This is months and years we're talking about. Mm-hmm. As you're traveling and speaking with people, this is your district that includes Maui. Mm -hmm. What are people telling you about what they need most immediately, understanding that this will be a long and heartbreaking and painstaking process? You know, the the hard thing is what they need. We we can't give so many of them. They want to know if a family member is okay. They want to know if a friend is okay. They want to go home. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, And you can't give them those answers and you can't necessarily let them back in just the condition. uh, The air there is literally toxic in some situations. Um, You stir up ash, you get asbestos and other chemicals potentially entering the air. Um, So it it breaks your heart that what people want most, some certainty about loved ones, their friends and families to be able to go home, if nothing else, to get some kind of closure that that they will have to rebuild everything. Um, These are things we can't give them immediately. And we're doing everything we can to get them those answers as quickly as possible, especially the state of their loved ones. But we know this is an absolutely heart-wrenching long road for so many of our friends and family on Maui. Right. We've got about 45 seconds left. Hawaii's Governor Josh Green has ordered a review of the fire as well as the response. There have been some concerns raised over why emergency sirens were not activated. Briefly, what do you hope to learn from that review? 
you know, we have a lot of serious questions that are going to be asked right now. And I think we have to consider how we quickly and efficiently warn people in our rural communities. We are both rural and remote. And sometimes you will not have power. Sometimes you will not have internet service, yeah. which was the case in, in this situation. You also have rapidly moving disasters heading right. your way. What is the most efficient way we can get help and warning to people, mm -hmm. alerts, and quite frankly, living here we have to take those alerts seriously when yes. the sirens go off when you hear your friends and neighbors running all um, right respond that's congresswoman jill tokuda of hawaii thank you so much thank you earlier this year a montana court heard arguments in a first of its kind climate trial young people alleged that the state's promotion of fossil fuels violates montana's constitution and today the judge who heard that case ruled in their favor as npr's nathan rott reports it could have a big long-term impact on climate litigation the lawsuit was brought by 16 plaintiffs aged 5 to 22 and it's centered on a unique part of montana's constitution which guarantees the state's residents to a clean and healthful environment the argument the plaintiffs made was that Montana's promotion of climate warming fossil fuels like coal and gas violated that right. In a 103-page ruling, State Judge Kathy Seeley overwhelmingly agreed. I thought this was one of the strongest decisions on climate change ever issued by any court anywhere. Michael Gerard is the director of Columbia Law School's Sabin Center for Climate Change Law. It was only the second time there's ever been an actual trial uh, in a courtroom with climate scientists on the stand subject to cross-examination. And the court found uh, for the, uh, the plaintiffs in every respect. In particular, the judge ruled against a provision in Montana's Environmental Policy Act, which prevents the state from considering the climate impacts of energy projects at all. Barbara Chilcott is a Montana-based attorney who worked on the case for the Western Environmental Law Center. You know, going forward in Montana, at least, we certainly will see the state uh, being required now to actually consider climate change, which seems like a no-brainer, but um, it's a huge step. In an emailed statement, Emily Flowers, a spokeswoman for Montana's attorney general, called the ruling absurd and a taxpayer-funded publicity stunt. The state's argument has long been that Montana, a state of just over a million people, can't be blamed for changing the world's climate. The ruling dismisses that argument, though, and lays out science-based climate facts, which Gerard and Chilcott both say could be used in future climate cases. Nationally, I, I think that a case like this is what sets the stage for the dominoes to fall, right? And for other courts to to look at this really detailed ruling from the judge in Montana and say, yeah, we've, we've got something similar going on and, you know, we're not charting new territory now. A similar lawsuit in Hawaii is set to go to trial next summer. Nathan Rott, NPR News. In California, many recent high school grads are preparing to leave the liberal enclave for states that now ban abortion. Some students headed to historically black colleges and universities in the South are especially worried. KQED's April Domboski takes us to Oakland Technical High School, where nurses are helping students prepare to live under more restrictive laws. Behind the main classroom building, across from the football field and bleachers, there's a small, bright purple building. This is the Techniclinic, a school-based health center run by a local nonprofit where students can come during lunch, get free confidential birth control consults and STI checks, then get back to their desk for fourth period math. 
Today, it's Ilesia Vital's last appointment before she leaves for a historically black college, Texas Southern University. And she is so excited for the freedom of being on her own and being surrounded by a thriving black student body. So I feel like it's really just positive, And I feel like I really want to be a part of that community. But in recent months, she's realized that this newfound freedom will come at the expense of another. Even on TikTok, I seen on TikTok, there was a girl that was in the South. She, she tells the nurse how she's been reading about abortion bans in the South. Stand up for the life of that baby. Watching videos on TikTok of protesters harassing women at clinics. It's a sin against God and it's the... I think that really opened my eyes even more to see that that's where I'm going to be going for school for four years and I don't want to be stuck like that or even like people pushing me away with like umbrellas and stuff in front of a clinic. So... That's powerful, love. Yeah. That's really powerful. Well, I'm happy to get you some birth control before you go today, okay? So let me... Nurse Erin Kramer has been having several senior send-off appointments like these, where she counsels patients as much about the law as about their medical options. Many students here are just totally floored when I tell them that these laws are different in the states that they're going to. They can't believe that they can't get an abortion in this country. Kramer has been writing prescriptions for a year's worth of pills or patches, which, under California law, students can get for free, all at once, without having to tell their parents. But Ilesia, who's been seeing Nurse Kramer for years, tells her she's in the market for something even more reliable. Because I'm, I'm very forgetful. Even if I set an alarm or write it down, it'll still slip my mind. She wants a long-term contraceptive. Um, they're both long-acting. You can yep. forget about them. The, um, an IUD or an implant that will last for years. Nurse Kramer goes over the options and asks Ilesia some basic health questions. Sleeping okay at night? Yeah. About her sleep and mood. All right, and tell me, who are you talking to these days? Uh, same person. Who are you talking to is adolescent speak for who are you having sex with. And you guys were have been off and on, off and on, off and on? Yeah. How do you feel like going forward? Well, now they're on because he's going to Texas too with me to school. What? Yeah, so... Alasia decides to go with the implant next plan on. So Nurse Kramer puts on some calming music, washes her hands, and has Ilesia lie down and raise her left hand over her head. Kramer gives her a quick shot of numbing medication in her upper arm, then coaches her through a series of deep breaths as she slides the tiny rod underneath her skin. Ilesia says she's relieved. Now, for the next four years, she can focus on her education and revel in the freedom of college. Nurse Kramer heads back to her office. She has a list of patients to check up on, many headed to states that ban abortion. For NPR News, I'm April Dimboski in Oakland. This story is part of NPR's partnership between KQED and KFF Health News. It's NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Checking business news for the day today on Wall Street, an upswing to start the week. The Dow rose less than a tenth of a percent. Tech stocks made a comeback, lifting the S&P up more than a half percent, and the Nasdaq up more than a full percent. 
The heat in the U.S. this summer has been brutal, and this kind of summer might become routine. So what can the government do to help support people who cannot afford to cool their homes? An American cooling strategy coming up in about 15 minutes on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Prompt, with a mission to help students get into their top-choice colleges. Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling college essays. More at myprompt.com NPR. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. A company called Jackpocket is using a loophole in the state's ban on online gambling. The app launched in the state last month. It has no affiliation with the Massachusetts lottery. It allows people to use Jackpocket couriers to buy lottery tickets for them at a convenience store in Methuen. State Treasurer Deb Goldberg has called for state-sanctioned online gambling through a website or mobile app. The state legislature did not include that provision in its budget for this year. In the forecast, look for cloudy skies moving in overnight tonight. Some showers by dawn tomorrow. Lows about 68 degrees. Could have rain, maybe some thunderstorms pushed around by a strong wind tomorrow. About 73 degrees. 84 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the new season of Silent Witness. Every dead body tells a story in this long-running forensic crime drama starring Amelia Fox. New season streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. Almost a decade of war in Yemen seems to be winding down, but in hospitals there, people are still struggling for their lives in the face of widespread hunger and food shortages. Some 200,000 people have already died from malnutrition and lack of health care during the war. Children are the most vulnerable. And as NPR's Fatma Tanis reports, not enough aid is coming in. Please note that this story contains descriptions of sick children. Rows of makeshift tents make up this camp for internally displaced people, one of the oldest in the port city of Aden and home to thousands who fled the war in northern areas. Underneath the scorching sun, people line up to fill their cans with water from a tank that's sometimes empty, and no food is being provided. Inside one of the tents is 19-year-old Wafa Ibrahim Ali, whose family fled their home because of airstrikes from the Saudi-led coalition. We couldn't leave our homes for weeks. I know so many people who died, friends, neighbors, and many others were badly injured. As she talks, her two-year-old son sticks close. He's not wearing anything because she's been unable to get clothes for him. She's thankful that they are safe in this camp, but they still don't have money, even for food. We haven't gotten any food aid. My father and brother try to find work carrying things, but most times we don't have food to eat. About half of Yemen's population needs food assistance. A recent survey by the World Food Program showed that more than one million pregnant women or breastfeeding mothers and more than two million children under five are suffering from acute malnutrition. 
The dire situation is reflected in Aden's Al-Sadaqa Hospital, where the departments for women and children are at capacity. Dr. Manal Abdul Halim heads the neonatal department. She says they don't have enough equipment or beds to deal with the number of babies who are born premature with anemia and other issues because the mothers aren't able to eat enough. We take a tour around the department. In one room, a young mother explains through her tears that she's trying to breastfeed but doesn't have enough milk to feed her child. Abdul Halim tries to comfort her. We head next to the intensive care unit for newborns, often born with complications because of malnutrition. As we enter, a nurse pulls a sheet over a baby who just died. The parents aren't here. Often, families use all their resources to bring their child to the hospital, but can't afford to return again. So the hospital has to take care of burials, too, without them. This has been the reality in Yemen for years. Abdul Halim says recently they felt a glimmer of hope when the peace talks started. But in the year or so since, they haven't seen a drop in needs or hospitalizations. There isn't enough aid coming in. David Gressley is the United Nations resident and humanitarian coordinator for Yemen, reached in July from Sana'a. He says $4.3 billion was needed this year to provide life-saving aid to Yemen but they had only received 29% of what they needed. The humanitarian situation is really pretty serious throughout the country with over 21 million people in need, of which we're probably providing food to about 10, 10 half million people, given the funding levels that we currently have. Gressley says the U.S. and European countries have been contributing, but donations have wavered from the two main Gulf countries that have sent troops into Yemen's conflict, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. So, for example, um, the uh, UAE is not in a position right now to contribute, even though they did two years ago. And the uh, contributions coming from Saudi Arabia are also quite a bit lower than in the past. So that's where our core problem is right now. NPR reached out to the foreign ministries of Saudi Arabia and the UAE for comment, but has received none. More recently, Saudi Arabia said it pledged a package of a billion dollars that included food security to the government of Yemen. While the shortage in aid is one major problem, another is the unresolved conflict. In 2014, Houthi rebels backed by Iran overthrew the Saudi-backed government. They took control of parts of Yemen, including the capital, Sana'a. And even with peace talks last year slowing down the fighting, the country remains divided. There are fuel shortages, and the movement of essentials like water, food, and medicine is restricted in many areas. Gressley worries people won't buy into the possibility of peace if they can't see the benefits, like in the frontline, still dangerous city of Taiz. One of my major concerns is places like Taiz that have not seen the kind of benefit that the de facto truce has provided to other populations in the country. And I'm concerned about that from a larger point of view because we want everybody to have a stake in peace and to believe that peace will be of a benefit to them. 
Taiz is the third largest city in Yemen, divided in half between the two warring sides. At Al Thawra Hospital, 27-year-old Malia Qasim Mahmoud is sitting on a bed with her emaciated baby lying limp in her arms. She tries to feed him some protein paste, but he can barely open his mouth. This is her third time in the hospital. Her older child was severely malnourished and had to be brought in for treatment. He's better now, but his growth has been stunted, leaving the six-year-old much smaller than other kids his age. She herself was malnourished and had to be hospitalized too. She says they've never gotten aid through the war. Her husband lost access to his job after the division, and for years he hasn't been able to find consistent work. The lack of fuel in Taiz means businesses don't operate, aid and other goods can't come in easily. Most days, the family only have some water and flour. Mahmoud makes doughy paste, and they eat that. Usually, it's just one meal a day. As we finish speaking, Dr. Abdul Kawi Dirham, who's the head of the nutrition department here, pulls me aside. Hospital acquired infection. There's another problem, he says. The hospital isn't clean. They're not getting enough sanitation supplies, and there's been no functioning Ministry of Health overseeing them. Many patients have gotten infections from staying at the hospital, so now they don't keep anyone longer than a week, which is often not enough time to recover from malnutrition. For Malia Qasim Mahmoud, there's little hope that the war will end and that her life will get better. Soon she and her baby will have to go back home where nothing has changed. She will still only be able to provide her family with water and flour. And as long as Yemen remains in desperate need of aid, Mahmoud says she'll likely end up back at the hospital again. Fatma Tanis, NPR News, reporting from Aden and Taiz, Yemen. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at 5.50, the cultural impact of the billion girl summer trifecta, Beyonce, Taylor Swift, and Barbie. That's ahead in about 20 minutes. Tap and listen to WBUR anywhere the summer takes you. Listen live and catch up on everything you've missed. Download or update the WBUR app now. In sports, David Krejci of the Bruins is retiring. The Spencer spent 16 years with the Bruins. He also played his 1,000th game with the team. Krejci's retirement comes on the heels of a similar announcement from teammate Patrice Bergeron. The former team captain announced his retirement last month. Red Sox have tonight off. They are back at work tomorrow. In the forecast, it's been such a beautiful day today. Overnight tonight, clouds move in. We should have rain by daybreak tomorrow, temperatures in the upper 60s. And then tomorrow, thunderstorms, rain, a wind-driven rain, in fact. Highs not very high at all, only reaching the low 70s. Wednesday, a bit milder in the upper 70s with a mix of sunshine and clouds. Still 84 degrees in Boston at 530. Some 15% of mothers at some point grapple with postpartum depression. We still have this lovely idea that you have your baby, it's the greatest day of your life, and then you're so happy to be home and with the baby and bonding and as a family. And in reality, there's a lot of competing demands. Now, a new pill plus growing efforts by doctors are bringing those mothers hope. I'm Deborah Becker. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Maui, firefighters are still battling at least two lingering wildfires that ravaged the historic town of Lahaina last week. While the fire is 85% contained on Lahaina, the fallout from the blaze is being felt throughout Hawaii, as Bill Dorman of Hawaii Public Radio explains. This is being felt on every island. Hawaii is the most isolated island archipelago in the world. And on every island, people know people on Maui or have family, other Mm -hmm. ties. Every island a bit different. There's a lot that pulls Hawaii together. Right now, there's that profound sadness. There are questions, but there's also determination, the desire to help, grit. Uh, But this is going to be a very long process. That's Bill Dorman reporting. Hawaii's governor expects the death toll from the wildfires to continue to rise. So far, 96 people have died in the deadliest wildfire in the U.S. in over a century. Southern Ukraine's been coming under Russian attack since the weekend, as Hannah Palomarenko tells us at least seven people have died, several others injured, in Ukraine's latest battle to end Russia's occupation in the south. There's a day of mourning today in the southern Kherson region, after Russian artillery shelling there Sunday. The region is partially occupied by Russian forces. Among the dead are a family of four, including a 23-day-old baby girl. Russia also attacked the Odessa region three times, firing a total of 15 drones and eight cruise missiles. Ukraine's air defense repelled the attacks, but debris from the destroyed drones injured three people and damaged about 200 buildings. Russia has increased its attacks on Ukraine's port since it withdrew from the Black Sea grain deal. For NPR News, I'm Hanna Palomarenko in Kyiv. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts Health Connector is expanding affordable health care access. Current regulations make the health care coverage only available to people who make up to 300 percent of the federal poverty level and don't have access to coverage through their employer or some other way. The recently passed fiscal year 2024 budget included provisions for expanding income limits to 500 percent of the poverty level. This grants access to Health Connector coverage to more than 50,000 additional people. The Healy administration is asking the federal government to phase in the replacement of the two bridges that span the Cape Cod Canal, starting with the Sagamore Bridge. Here's WBUR's Steve Brown. In a statement, Governor Healy says the first phase will enable the state to get shovels in the ground quickly on the Sagamore Bridge and lay the groundwork for rebuilding the Bourne Bridge. Until now, the plan had been to seek replacement of the 88-year-old bridges simultaneously. The administration is finalizing an application to compete for $1.45 billion in federal funds. That application is due next week. The governor's statement says replacement of the Sagamore should go first because it carries more traffic and its connection to the Mid-Cape Highway plays a vital role in the Cape's economic viability. A spokeswoman for the governor stressed that they will still seek funding to replace both bridges, but that this is just the first phase. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Governor Maura Healey and other officials broke ground this afternoon on a new soldier's home in Holyoke. That's where a COVID-19 outbreak three years ago killed at least 76 veterans. The incident led to several leadership changes at the home and reforms to the oversight of the state's two veterans' homes. The new Holyoke facility is expected to cost $482 million and will have 234 long-term care beds. It should be complete in the summer of 2028. 22 people displaced after a large sinkhole opened up in Haverhill will be allowed to return to their homes Wednesday. 
Their five-unit apartment building was evacuated after a pipe burst during last week's heavy storms. Officials say that caused at least a million dollars in damage. The city says it's paying for the residents to stay at a hotel until they can return home. Meanwhile, 32 residences and three businesses have also submitted claims to the city for potential state or federal assistance stemming from the storms. And a Quincy man has been ordered held without bail after he was charged with assaulting a woman on Columbus Avenue in Boston over the weekend. 35-year-old Amos Sykes is accused of grabbing the victim and forcing her to the ground, then repeatedly punching her. Police say Sykes fled the scene but was soon caught. A motive for the attack is not known. The woman suffered non-life-threatening injuries. In the forecast, clouds roll in for the night. Temperatures pull back to the upper 60s. Tomorrow should just break 70, a windy and rainy day with a rumble of thunder. And then Wednesday could make it to the upper 70s, clouds and sunshine both. This is WBUR 84 degrees now at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, who along with its retailers is partnering with adoptaclassroom.org to provide funding to high-need schools and local communities for Subaru Loves Learning. Subaru, more than a car company. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsie Chang in Culver City, California. The leaders of Niger's military junta say they will prosecute the country's deposed president, Mohamed Bazoum, for treason. It's a charge that's punishable by death. It comes after weeks of failed diplomatic efforts, and it could further destabilize a region and a country where the U.S. has had more than 1,000 troops. For more, we're joined by Andrew Lebovich. He's a researcher who studies the Sahel region with the Klingendale Institute and the Danish Institute for International Studies. He's recently back from a trip to Niger. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So I understand that you were there during the actual coup. What was the atmosphere like during the coup and in the days right after? Like, what stood out to you? Well, it was at first quite a confused situation, and many people really initially saw this as a a quite minor thing, a kind of internal competition within security forces. Mm -hmm. But there was still quite a bit of, of sort of confusion and maneuvering as people tried to figure out what was going on, how serious it was, and of course, whether or not this could be reversed. Uh, In the days afterwards, as things took much more hold, and it became fairly clear that the junta was not going to be reversed anytime soon, people really settled into their own routine, some went back to work, and many people really were just trying to get on with their lives and just wait and see what happened. Well, can we talk about this latest treason charge against the deposed president? The junta says the charge has come up because Bazoum undermined the security of the country. How significant is it that he's been charged with treason, or they say he will be? Well, I I think this is a bit of a a game of brinksmanship that's going on right now, because you can't look at this without looking both at the, the Nigerian context and then the regional context. So within the Nigerian context, this is clearly an effort to try to cement further the popularity of the junta or try to gain more popularity for the junta by playing on discontent with the ruling party. At the same time, the condition of Bazoum and of his family is also a a point of leverage for the junta where they're trying to 
remind the international community, and particularly the economic community of West African states or ECOWAS, that they more or less control what happens to him and that they can make things much worse if the regional community, if the international community maintains this pressure on the junta. Okay. Well, since you study security in the region, I want to zoom out a little bit. What do you see as the spillover effects from this coup and a possible, though slimly possible, treason charge? What spillover effects on the neighboring countries? Well, we've already seen some economic impacts from the border closures of Niger. At the same time, there's a real risk of growing insecurity within Niger. And we've already seen several attacks, several confirmed attacks by jihadist groups since the coup. And so there's a real concern that the security situation will get worse pretty rapidly, even though the Nigerian military is generally regarded as being more professional, somewhat more capable than its neighbors. But clearly the military is distracted. And of course, those are troops that are not going to be then involved in fighting militant groups. That is Andrew Lebovich. He's a researcher who studies security in the Sahel region. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Heat kills more people each year than any other natural force. July was the hottest month on record. But for people already living on the financial edge, the decision to crank up their AC to remain cool often means sacrificing the money they would spend on other costs of living, like food. And while the federal government does have a program to provide aid for energy cost assistance, the focus has traditionally been on winter heating, and hardly any of that money is used for summer cooling. So what can we do to ensure people aren't dying of heat stroke inside their own homes? That's the question Mark Wolf is addressing. He's the executive director of the National Energy Assistance Directors Association. He joins us now. Mark, welcome. Well, thank you for inviting me. So, Mark, I just want to start by putting this in some human terms. I mean, we're talking about people who are being forced to make these impossible choices between choosing whether they cool their homes or feed their families or pay other bills. Do you have a sense of just how big a problem this is? How many people are being impacted by, I guess, what you could call energy insecurity? The problem's very significant. There are about 28 million households in the country eligible for energy assistance. So you think about that, it's almost one out of three households in the United States struggle to pay not just their energy bills, but their food bills, their medical bills. And people who are most vulnerable are the elderly, those with pre-existing conditions, and those families tend to be disproportionately low income. As we mentioned, the federal government does have a program to provide aid for energy cost assistance. It's called the Low Income Energy Assistance Program. Can you tell us a little bit about that program and how effective it is at actually helping people who are struggling to afford keeping their homes cool this summer? The program was passed about 40 years ago when most of the concern was about winter heating. And the program is reasonably effective at helping people stay safe during the winter. But the funding is only adequate to really help during that period. About 80% of the funds go for home heating. That's really the core problem. All the states agree we need to provide adequate cooling. We just don't have the resources to do it. I mean, so Mark, given that landscape, given the logjam that we see on Capitol Hill on any number of issues, including this one, right? what can be done right now to help people out there who 
are struggling to pay their energy bills. And in some cases, this is really a life or death issue. In the short run, we need to recognize this is a national emergency. One, we're asking all utilities to agree to a voluntary moratorium on shutoffs for families. So nobody has to worry about their power being shut off if they can't pay the bill. Secondly, we're asking Congress to provide emergency funds. And I know it's going to be difficult. There's gridlock on Congress, but this is a national emergency. We have families at great risk. We know people are dying. It's all unnecessary. You know, Mark, I recently looked at one of these applications for help that's intended for people struggling to pay their energy bills on behalf of an elderly family member. Mm -hmm. And when I was going through the process, one of the things that struck me is that it's well-intended, but applying didn't look particularly easy. There's a lot of steps and a lot of documentation. And I was talking to some people, and it seems like some people aren't even aware that even with limited funding, that programs like these exist. Are are there ways to make it easier for folks to know that these programs are out there and then to have access to the funds that are there if they're really struggling? I completely agree. The forms in some cases are way too complicated. But the bottom line problem is there isn't enough money available to help all the families who need help. You know, one of the weaknesses with not just this program, but other federal programs is very little money is spent on marketing and outreach because every dollar that goes for outreach is a dollar that can't help a family. So there's a tendency not to spend money on outreach. So our thought is that if you receive Medicaid assistance or you receive SNAP or food stamp assistance, you should be automatically eligible for energy assistance as well. That's Mark Wolf from the National Energy Assistance Directors Association. Mark, thank you. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Air raid sirens go off every day in Ukraine, sometimes several times a day, to warn that Russian forces have fired missiles and drones at cities and neighborhoods around the country. Like most Ukrainians, a young musical duo knew that these missiles could someday hit them, but they kept on singing. NPR's Joanna Kakissis has their story from southeastern Ukraine. Svetlana Semekina and Kristina Spitsina started performing together last year as a duo called Similar Girls. 21-year-old Kristina sang lead vocals. 18-year-old Svetlana, her friends called her Sveta, played guitar and sang backup. They loved performing Ukrainian rock songs. They went busking around Ukraine and uploaded videos of their performances to Instagram and TikTok. In this video, they're talking about their adventures in the central city of Dnipro. We're having so much fun because we came here with our support team, our friends, Sveta says in the video, and our poor boyfriends, Christina adds, who carried all our equipment. Similar girls often performed in Zaporizhia, a city that's near their hometown of Matvivka. In this video, they're in one of the city's lush parks. They're singing about fallen soldiers. Their friends and family said their earnings went to the Ukrainian military. Kristina's father is in the National Guard. 
On August 9th, the duo had an evening gig in Zaporizhia, even though Russian missiles have been hitting the city lately. It's not far from the front line. They set up in a busy neighborhood near a church and a playground and played for a couple of hours. They wrapped up with a song called We Will Win This War. They dedicated it to Kherson, another Ukrainian city, under constant Russian shelling. Thank you for existing, Christina says, and thanks to those defending Ukraine. Sveta's boyfriend, Mikita Tunik, remembers the duo singing their hearts out that night. After the show, they went for a walk. Mikita stayed behind to watch their equipment. And sometime later, he heard an explosion. Rescue workers prevented him from going anywhere near it. Sveta did not answer her phone. We called Christina, and she managed to pick up her phone for six seconds. But she could not say anything. Christina's mother ran right into the middle of the scene. She was told to wait in the ambulance. Then she called me and said that the girls were found under the rubble. Police said Sveta died instantly and Christina a short while later. The similar girls were buried side by side in their hometown, Matvivka. Their devoted friends shivered with grief in the summer rain as mourners threw fistfuls of earth over the coffins. I couldn't believe it until the very end, one friend sobbed. Another wondered maybe she could have saved them. Maybe she could have taken them somewhere else after the show. No, the other said. It could have been any of us. Joanna Kikisis, NPR News, Matvivka, Ukraine. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Thanks for joining us this evening. In Kansas, one community's entire police force raided a newspaper and publisher's home. We'll hear about the pushback police are getting for that raid coming up. In the news, a New Hampshire couple is suing Italy, the Italian food market and restaurants at the Prudential Center in Boston. Alice Cohen says she was shopping with her husband last October when she slipped and fell on a slice of prosciutto on the floor. She says the fall caused her to fracture her ankle. The site Universal Hub reports the couple has spent more than $7,000 on medical bills and physical therapy since her fall. WBR has reached out to Italy for comment. In the forecast, beautiful out there right now, but clouds should collect this evening and tonight should be about 68 degrees overnight. Tomorrow, a change in the weather should be stormy and wet for the day, windy, and only in the low 70s tomorrow. Wednesday should reach the upper 70s with sunshine and clouds sharing the sky. This is WBUR. It's 549. As a child, Pigeon Pagonis was told a lie, that they were a girl, but they'd never go through puberty like other girls. So I always knew there was something different about me, but I never had the language for what was different because no one wanted to give me the truth. Now, Pagonis has published a memoir of their journey, seizing the truth and celebrating intersex identity. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. First came Hot Girl Summer, then Hot Vax Summer. 
And now. Welcome to the Renaissance. It looks like 2023 has ushered in Billion Girl Summer. We are talking about the epic trifecta of Beyonce's Renaissance Tour, Taylor Swift's Eras Tour, and Greta Gerwig's box office record-smashing Barbie movie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. All three already have or are on their way to earning more than a billion dollars globally. And all three have felt inescapable in the pop culture landscape. We want to dig into these experiences that have really seemed to define this summer. So we are bringing this conversation to our group chat. Today, we've got Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and Bilal Qureshi, senior editor on NPR's Culture Desk. Hey, y'all. Hey, Wana. Hey, Wana. It's so nice to be here. Good to have y'all. Bilal, I want to start with you because you wrote this incredible analysis piece for NPR.org, and and you called the Barbie movie and Beyonce and Taylor's tours this epic trifecta. What made this summer different for you? Well, you know, I, I think for me it was because even though at times when I heard about all of these things happening, I didn't feel like I was the target audience, <laughs> and I felt so excited to be part of it, which feels very unusual in a lot of ways because none of us have, we've all gotten used to these very personal habits of consuming media and doing things on our own and obviously the lockdown years. So there was an obviousness to kind of the mass culture of it. But then also I just found these three events. I mean, the reason they've grossed so much money is not just because they're, you know, a hot billion girl summer, but because they're so good and they've been such incredible events that people have felt really satisfied and inspired by. Brittany, what about you? What made the summer feel different for you when it comes to these three works? I think the two big biggest things are um, there's like a desire, I think, among a lot of us for a collective experience. You know, um, Bilal, you know, mentioned whether it's our music, podcasts, what TV we're streaming, who we're following on TikTok. These are all now highly individualized, private experiences. And with Beyonce and the Renaissance Tour and Taylor and the Eras Tour, and of course, the Barbie movie, whether you like them or whether you don't like them, you feel like you must take a stance and also taking that stance, it unites you with other people. The other thing is, which kind of brings me to the other point, all of these things are inescapable, <laughs> as you <laughs> mentioned. Um, I am not even a Taylor fan. Every time I, every day, every time I open up TikTok at night before I go to bed, somebody is live streaming. I have seen huh? 10 second bits of that tour from every single angle, from every single city that Taylor has been to in the past year. I also want to talk about the women who are at the center of these explosive cultural moments. What do you think, Brittany, made this combination of Greta Gerwig and all of the women who starred in Barbie, Taylor Swift's eras tour, Beyonce's renaissance, what makes them, these women, different than perhaps other hot it girls of summer that we've seen in the past? Hmm. Um, That's a really good question. I think part of it has to do with the length of their careers. These are all uh, three people who are influential, who have long spanning careers and the fan bases to go with them. Right. Um, But also, I think there are many on ramps to getting into each of these women's like overs. Like we can dissect them as cultural figures the same way that we can dissect Barbie as a cultural figure. Um, they are in the public's eyes, industries unto themselves. These are not just um, people who are releasing a hot song for the summer, like maybe Katy Perry or something like that with California girls all those summers ago. Um, Cal- Katy Perry obviously is a huge pop star, but not 
a cultural icon in the same way, if that makes sense. The other thing I want to add is that, you know, they've all had this incredible summer against the backdrop of like years of all of us who cover the entertainment industry talking about you know, women's place in their various industries, what credit they receive and don't receive and how much ownership they have. Of course, Taylor Swift mm. having this meta narrative around re-recording her music and reclaiming the rights to her music. Finally, a lot of women are getting both the financial and the like industrial power to do things that are really in their control. And they're, I mean, Margot Robbie produced Bar the Barbie movie, chose, you know, Greta Gerwig. Like these are kind of important moments in the business story of, of, of women in the entertainment industry. I want to talk about the element of this that is about that feeling, that need to be there, to be in community with people, to experience this movie and these two tours. I mean, I am not a person who spends a lot of money on concerts normally, but I remember sitting literally in the studio <laughs> while we were waiting for the show to start when the Beyonce presale started so I could get those tickets. I've sadly been waylaid as a Swifty and won't be able to see the Eras tour until next year. But like for you, I know we've all seen some of these experiences firsthand. For y'all... What was the mood like? What was the vibe like at the shows that you saw or at the screenings that you were at? How did it feel? <laughs> well, we we actually pre-gamed <laughs> to see Beyonce opening night in Stockholm together. Uh, Love it. Yeah. We were we were migrate migrating for this, which was but I have to say because the tickets were in substantially cheaper in Europe than they were in America they were. and easier they to were. get, weirdly, but that's a different story. Even just speaking for Stockholm, Stockholm is a much smaller city than where either of us live. I live in New York, obviously, and Bilal, you live in LA, but it's a, it was almost easier to see the takeover in Stockholm. Um, you could see Beyonce fans from a mile away in Stockholm. People were dressed up um, and people were excitedly speaking in American English accents. The energy around those experiences, at least the energy around Renaissance for me and going to see the Barbie movie was pure joy as a nice respite, I think, from like this past summer of just relentless news and climate grief. And I wanted to say, you know, I think I think um, we have to get back at some point to the cost factor because we're talking oh, yeah. about our, you know, financial predicaments to get to these places. And, and this is inaccessible to lots of people. And I think mm -hmm. it's important to, to mention that because you don't gross a billion dollars without, you know, selling product. And so there is a component to this that is a lot of a lot of economic activity around it, some of which people may, may think was really, you know, not in people's interest or whatever. But my point is that, you know, from various kinds of time to merchandising, to all of that, there was a kind of, yeah, there was a kind of exuberance to a lot of this, which which felt like a lot of escapism slash retail therapy. The tickets became kind of this game. Like it was like, I was looking at Ticketmaster for concerts I wasn't going to, to be like, what's <laughs> happening on this? And that's how I accidentally stumbled into a Taylor Swift resale ticket. Anytime anything is successful on this sort of a scale in the entertainment world, you always see attempts by people to repeat it. Do either of y'all think we're going to see another season, another summer like this billion girl summer in the future? Or is this a singular event? I think we're going to see a lot of unflattering imitations. Yeah, a lot of cheap <laughs> imitations, but very few alien superstars, which are what these three, I think, are. I think there was something kind of quite otherworldly and, and incredible about them doing it all and, and it all being released in this in this moment. That was NPR's Bilal Qureshi, a senior editor on NPR's Culture Desk, and Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Thank you so much for the group chat. If you, like me, can't get enough of this billion girl summer, check out Bilal's analysis online. You can find it at npr.org. And don't miss Brittany's episode of It's Been a Minute, where they also talked about some of these themes and the disappearance of the song of the summer. You can find that wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, oh, baby,
listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. A grand jury could decide within hours or days whether former President Donald Trump should be indicted for interfering in the state's 2020 presidential election. Updates and coverage from NPR is on WBUR 90.9, so listen every day. In the forecast pretty beautiful out there still now. Look for clouds to move in overnight tonight. Temperatures down to about 68 degrees. And then for tomorrow, nothing like today. Should be stormy and wet tomorrow. Some thunderstorms off and on during the day. Windy, not very warm either. Temperatures in the low 70s. Should be about the upper 70s on Wednesday with sunshine and clouds. This is WBUR. I'm here and now executive producer Carleen Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Central Kansas, a police force raided a newspaper in a publisher's home. The police department has faced pushback over the event tied to a restaurant owner's claim that the paper invaded her privacy. Our story is coming up on this Monday, August 14th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, nearly 100 people have died in the wildfires in Maui, and the search continues. Some of those who fled their homes to escape the fires left much behind, including prescription drugs. The people that have chronic diseases, now it's been days without medicine, so that chronic problem can become acute. More on one doctor's efforts to get help to those in need. And a profile of Fannie Willis, the prosecutor who may be about to charge former President Donald Trump in Atlanta. It's 6.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Biden administration is starting a new round of student loan forgiveness today. NPR's Alyssa Nadworny reports they'll be discharging $39 billion worth of student debt for hundreds of thousands of borrowers who've been paying back their loans for more than 20 years. It's the latest bout of forgiveness the Education Department has put in motion that aims to correct errors in how student loan servicers have handled certain loans in the past. Borrowers whose loans may be discharged qualified for income-driven repayment plans that promised forgiveness after 20 or 25 years. But few borrowers ever received forgiveness. Back in April of 2022, the Education Department announced it was adjusting borrowers' accounts to rectify this. And the change made about 
800,000 borrowers entitled to forgiveness. Notices of eligibility were set out at the beginning of the summer, despite continued legal challenges and opposition from Republican lawmakers. The Education Department says qualifying borrowers' remaining balances could disappear almost immediately. Alyssa Nadworny. NPR News. Data from wastewater surveillance and hospital admissions is pointing to a rise in summer cases of COVID. And as NPR's Allison Aubrey explains, a new booster is expected out this fall. The CDC says hospital admissions among people with COVID have risen slightly. Infectious disease expert Bruce Farber of Northwell Health, which has about 20 hospitals in the New York area, says most but not all patients who've tested positive for COVID in their hospitals are in for another reason such as for a surgery or an injury. Very, very few are critically ill with COVID and very few are dying with COVID. A newer variant called EG5 is now circulating widely and a new booster is expected out in early fall to help protect against a potential winter wave. In past years, January and February have been peak season for the virus. Alison Aubrey. NPR News. Americans seem to be getting a little less anxious about where inflation is headed. NPR's Scott Horsley reports on a new survey by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. The survey, conducted in July, found on average people think inflation will be running about 3.5% a year from now. That's a lower forecast than they gave in June and suggest that as actual inflation has cooled, so have expectations about what will happen to prices in the future. The average forecast of what inflation will look like three and five years out was also down last month, but only slightly at 2.9 percent. That would still be well above the Federal Reserve's target of 2 percent inflation. The central bank has been boosting interest rates aggressively in an effort to bring prices under control. Betting markets think the Fed will leave rates unchanged at the next rate-setting meeting in September. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, the Dow is up 26 points. The Nasdaq rose 143 points today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The head of a group that advocates for public transportation is calling on Governor Maura Healey to do more to address problems at the long-ailing MBTA. WBUR's Rob Lane has more. The T's issues are most glaring on the red line, where data from Transit Matters shows trains are running slower and less frequently than a year ago. The nonprofit's executive director, Jared Johnson, lives along the red line. He tells Radio Boston he doesn't expect the governor to fix the T overnight, but he'd like to see some progress. At least on some key things like transparency, like giving folks a timeline for when they can expect to have, you know, better transit service. I think this administration really severely underestimates how little trust there is in the T. Healy's been in office since January. Her pick, Philip Eng, took over as the T's general manager in April. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. In her inaugural address, Healy pledged to hire 1,000 new T employees by January. So far this year, the agency has increased its headcount by just over 300 workers. A group of pork producers will be in court next month to try to block new regulations on livestock in Massachusetts. The hearing comes about two weeks after the ballot measure voters approved back in 2016 goes into effect. The new rules require that pork sold in the state comes from pigs raised in large enough spaces. 
The lawsuit was filed by pork producer Triumph Foods and several farmers. They say the law will place an added burden on pork producers from other states who will have to meet the standards in Massachusetts. A female humpback whale is safe after she was found entangled in fishing gear off Cape Ann over the weekend. The whale named Pinball was with her eight-month-old calf when boaters spotted her on Saturday. It took crews from the Center for Coastal Studies in Provincetown several hours to disentangle her. Pinball's calf kept its distance during the rescue efforts, except a nurse, and it was not injured. Both whales are reportedly doing well. For the second time in less than a month, the Boston Bruins are saying goodbye to one of their star players. Center David Krejci announced his retirement today, less than three weeks after team captain Patrice Bergeron called it a career. WBR's Fausto Menard has more. Krejci played parts of 16 seasons with the Bruins. During his tenure, the team reached the Stanley Cup final three times and won the championship in 2011. He ranks ninth on the team's all-time list for points scored and fifth in assists and games played. In a statement, Krejci thanked his teammates, his coaches, and the Bruins' owners and management team. To the fans, he wrote he will be forever grateful and will miss playing in front of them. He closed by saying he will always be a Bruin. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. Red Sox have the night off tonight. They're back at work tomorrow. And also in the news, Regional Business Association, the New England Council, has named its 2023 New Englanders of the Year. This year's four honorees include former Boston Mayor Marty Walsh and Boston Healthcare for the Homeless President, Dr. Jim O'Connell. They'll be honored at an awards ceremony in October. We've got some clouds moving in for the night tonight. Maybe some showers by dawn tomorrow. Lows about 68. Pack the umbrella tomorrow. Could have rain. Maybe some thunderstorms pushed around by a strong wind. Only about 73 tomorrow. By Wednesday, though, should be partly sunny with highs in the upper 70s. 82 degrees now in Boston at 6.08. WBUR supporters include the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. In Hawaii, nearly 100 people are dead, a number that is sure to rise as the recovery effort continues. More than 2,700 structures have been destroyed, including the vast majority of homes, leaving many hundreds of people hunkered down in shelters. Nearly a week out from the massive wildfires that swept the island of Maui, the grim picture is now more clear. Residents are demanding answers about how the wildfires could have been so destructive. Here's Hawaii Governor Josh Green. There's a lot to share. There's a lot of information that people want. And to that end, I've authorized a comprehensive review of what happened in the early hours of the fire and the hours thereafter. We'll have more from Maui later in the show, including the story of a local doctor who's helping victims who survived the fires get the help they need from burn treatments to prescription medications. But first, to Marion, Kansas, a town of fewer than 2,000 residents, where the entire police force raided the newsroom of the only newspaper that covers the town. It's called the Marion County Record. The raid highlights the clash between law enforcement and the press there and has also sparked an outcry over a violations of press freedoms. Joining us now to talk about the story and the broader implications are NPR's Daniel Kay and NPR media correspondent David Folkenflake. Kay to both of you. Hi, Elsa. Danielle, I want to start with you because I know that you've been reporting the ins and outs of this story, and I understand that you are speaking with the paper's publisher. What is he telling you? 
Yeah, I am. So Eric Meyer is the publisher and co-owner of the Marion County Record. He says on Friday morning, police entered the newspaper's office and his 98-year-old mother's home where he was staying at the time. Officers took reporters' computers, cell phones, and other reporting materials. And Meyer's mother passed away the day after the raid. He thinks the stress of the raid contributed to her death. A county judge had signed off on a search warrant for this raid, but how the police got that warrant does raise some red flags. The warrant says that the police are investigating the newsroom for identity theft involving a local restaurant owner. The paper was looking into an allegation about her driving record, and they never actually published anything. Law enforcement hasn't released the document that would explain the basis for this raid. And my conversations with the paper's publishers suggest the motivation for this raid could go far beyond what the warrant claims. Here's Meyer talking about how his newsroom was looking into allegations of misconduct against the police chief before he was sworn into the job on June 1st. It was alarming, to say the least, that the number of people who came forward uh, and some of the allegations that they made were fairly serious. And I do want to stress here that Meyer doesn't know if the raid was connected to his paper's reporting on the police chief's background. They didn't end up publishing any of the allegations against him, but Meyer says the chief knew about their reporting and he allegedly threatened to sue the paper if they did publish anything. Has there been any response from the police chief or the department? Well, in a statement, the police chief justified the raid, saying there are exceptions to established protections for newsrooms, and this case was one of them. I also asked the chief if he knew that he was being investigated by the newspaper and if the raid on the paper was linked to that investigation, mm-hmm. but he declined uh, He declined to comment on either of those questions. Okay. Well, David, let's go to you because I want to understand the bigger picture here. Like, How common is it for journalists to be raided by law enforcement? So you've heard there from Danielle about the the intimate and human scale, small town newspaper, uh, small town uh, uh, police force. But, you know, when we think about hearing about such things, you think about hearing about this in the Philippines. You think about hearing about this in Turkey or Russia, uh, you know, under somewhat repressive regimes. Not America. If you pull back 30,000 feet, this stuff doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen for a reason. You know, there about uh, over two decades ago, there was a case involving the Stanford Daily Newspaper, uh, which was taken all the way to the Supreme Court where uh, police officials wanted and took, they came with a warrant and took, uh, without warning, all this uh, film of uh, pictures taken at a protest. They wanted to see if they could prove protesters had committed crimes, particularly uh, apparently against law enforcement mm-hmm. officials. And they sued. And the Supreme Court said basically, look, this kind of violates First Amendment protections to some degree. It violates Fourth Amendment constitutional protections under unreasonable search and seizure. But there aren't certain kinds of explicit protections against getting information about third parties. Congress came back the next year and said, we're going to write that in. So there's going to be some uh, some tough protections. If you think in almost two decades later in San Francisco, 2019, a freelance reporter named Brian Carmody was raided by police. They had a warrant as well. Uh, they came with sledgehammers uh, to get his stuff, to take his, uh, his devices from home. And what happened was that San Francisco had to pay and agreed to pay him $369,000 because they violated his rights. Hmm. What the rules of the road are now is that you're required to essentially get a subpoena to ask for the information. Then subpoena is a legal request for information. Right. It slows the process down. You're 
former lawyer, you know this, Mm -hmm. it gives their lawyers a chance to challenge it, to test whether or not the basis on which this information is being desired is valid and whether they should have this ability to do that, to to go and get the info. But there was no subpoena here. So what does it tell you, David, that this raid in Marion, Kansas happened anyway on this newspaper? Well, even the FBI doesn't just go out and raid newspapers and the Washington Post, New York Times, the Wall Street Journal is going to report about stuff involving the Pentagon or National Security Agency, things that are national security secrets. They don't just go raid it. They challenge it. They demand information. Sometimes they go after leaks. And you've seen the Trump years. That's been uh, pursued with even more of a vengeance. But they don't simply go out and wantonly take devices, go through newsrooms, stomp loudly. And what you saw here, I think, was a very strong exercise of power in a very small town. And that is not only chilling to reporters who want to go after local officials, hold them accountable, but I think it's intended to do so in the absence of other information and evidence that hasn't so far come Mm -hmm. to light. Okay. Well, Danielle, to you now. At this point, where do we go from here in Marion? Well, lots of national organizations are speaking out against this, and an attorney in Kansas City is also helping the paper challenge the raid in court. And on top of that, the paper is still planning to publish this Wednesday, even though journalists' personal computers are gone, their cell phones are gone, the computers they use at the office for reporting and editing are gone. But despite all that, they say they're committed to still putting the paper out for the community. That is NPR's Danielle Kay and David Folkenflik. Thank you to both of you for your reporting. Thank you, Elsa. You bet. The official death toll has reached 96 in Maui after last week's devastating wildfires. Many more were injured and some had to flee their homes without their prescription drugs. Getting victims the care they need has been difficult. NPR's Jason DeRose reports on one doctor who's been trying to help however he can. The clinic is called MODO, which stands for Mobile Doctor, Specialty Urgent Care. I'm uh, Dr. Reza Dinesh. People just call me uh, Dr. Rez. Two decades in emergency medicine, a dozen on Maui. A few years ago, Dr. Rez opened this storefront clinic and outfitted a van as a mobile office. Now he makes house calls and offers free medical care through his nonprofit, MODO for the People. So anybody that can't afford or don't have that access to come to clinic, um, we go out to help them. And that came in clutch during this disaster because I literally thought I was just going there to check out the scene and write some prescriptions. Uh, and then I realized basically Lahaina was hit with like a nuclear bomb. Among those accompanying Dr. Rez was nurse Mary-Kate Larimer. It looked like something out of like a zombie movie. You know, they're completely in shock. They're, you know, covered in soot, you know, head to toe completely black. When they talk, you you know, their mouths are bright red. Red because of burns from the intense heat. The wildfires even affected some of Dr. Rez's employees. Office admin Jody Lewick had to evacuate. On that first night, she and her two sons slept in their car. We're kind of a community in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, right? (laughs) And When your outside resources are lessened, you learn to be more dependent on people. You know, I will tell you, they say with the island that it wraps its arms around you. Dr. Rez personifies those arms. And on this day, he's heading to an evacuation center. He has a goal. Getting the people that have chronic diseases, they're not acute. But now it's been days without medicine. So that chronic problem can become acute. So people with heart failure... Uh, somebody as simple as I need my bipolar meds. 
he and a volunteer load up the van with some food and water to give away in addition to the free medical care. I designed this Ford Sprinter just by myself because the ambulances are set to see like multiple people all the way. It doesn't feel like homey. This thing just feels like home. I have a little like little Persian rug even. But at the shelter, Dr. Rez gets a very different reception than the one he was expecting. I want to find out now. For you guys, what's going on here? Volunteer manager Vesta Sung says the Red Cross has taken over and is clamping down. Our shelter is a Red Cross shelter, so uh, right now we can't have you servicing our plants. Okay. Because you haven't been vetted through the Red Cross. Dr. Rez works his contacts, other doctors here, the head of the state medical board over the phone, but no luck. So he decides to redirect. He'll try to get back to Lahaina. But then everyone's phones start vibrating all at once. It's an emergency alert. There's a traffic fatality. So there's a car accident, and usually when that happens, they have to secure the scene and investigate. Which means the road to Lahaina is closed for the rest of the day. I'm feeling a little drained, and you know you want to help, and but your hands are tied because you're trying to organize and do it the right way. Frustrated, yes, but not deterred. He tries again the next day, and he'll try again tomorrow because Dr. Reza Dinesh makes house calls to wherever his patients need him. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Maui. All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. This is NPR. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. On Wall Street, the week has started with an upswing. The Dow rose less than a tenth of a percent. Tech stocks made a comeback that lifted the S&P up more than a half percent and the Nasdaq up by more than a full percent. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. Could get a little tipsy on a new kind of Dunkin' drink. Dunkin' officially announced it's launching a malt-based version of some of its signature iced coffees and iced teas. The Dunkin' spiked drinks will be available later this month in retail stores, not at Dunkin' locations. It's 619. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Massachusetts will become the eighth state to make free school lunch programs permanent. Tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR, what this could mean for students. Listen again when you wake up. Today may have been the mildest day of the week. It is 82 degrees now in the Boston area. We're due for clouds to move in tonight. Temperatures in the upper 60s. Then clouds and rain in a big way tomorrow. Gusty winds too. Highs only in the low 70s tomorrow. This is WBUR at 621. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. 
Former President Donald Trump could be indicted again this week, this time in Georgia over efforts to subvert the state's 2020 election result. The person responsible for pursuing that case is Fonnie Willis, the district attorney in Fulton County. Willis is known for her wide-reaching racketeering cases and making history as the first black woman elected top prosecutor in Atlanta. WABE's Sam Greenglass reports. Orange security barriers now surround the Fulton County Courthouse as prosecutors inside prepare what could be a historic case focused on a former president. But as this new security took effect downtown, Willis spent a recent Saturday at a local park handing out book bags to kids heading back to school. We want people to not only see us as being those people that put their nephews or their sons in jail, but that we're serious about being a part of the community. Willis was elected in 2020 and took office just a few days before that infamous phone call when Trump asked Georgia's Secretary of State to find him votes. Two and a half years after that phone call spurred Willis's investigation, she says her office is ready to go and has strongly signaled she'll ask a grand jury to charge multiple people. I'm living my dream. There's a lot of people as smart as Fonnie Willis, but somehow the citizens of Fulton County selected me. I'm still very humbled. And as long as I sit here, I'm going to do what's needed to keep this community safe. Willis got her start as a prosecutor in the Fulton DA's office and first made her name prosecuting a cheating scandal in Atlanta public schools. The sweeping racketeering case resulted in 11 convictions. Willis has said she's a fan of using Georgia's broad RICO law to prosecute complex webs of criminal activity. She's deployed RICO to go after gangs and is expected to use it for a Trump indictment, too. At least I believe she was called for a time such as this. That's former DeKalb County prosecutor Gwen Keyes Fleming, who's known Willis for two decades. But not everyone is praising Fulton County's district attorney. Some have questioned whether devoting resources to potentially prosecuting a former president comes at the cost of resolving other cases. And former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig recently suggested Willis's investigation could undermine the federal election interference case against Trump. Willis's investigation has been unforgivably sloppy, hampered by prosecutorial incompetence, and hopelessly tainted by her own self-interested politics. Honig notes that Willis, a Democrat, was disqualified from prosecuting a fraudulent elector because she hosted a fundraiser for his political opponent. Trump has unsuccessfully filed formal motions to disqualify Willis, but he's also gone further, disparaging her at rallies as the young racist in Atlanta. Gwen Keys Fleming says it's not easy being the first. Like Willis, she was also the first Black woman elected district attorney in her county. While we may be presented with headwinds that are different, all of us were more than prepared to step into the role, Fonnie included, and we all honored our oath, and Fonnie will do the same. Willis says she's never doubted whether the Trump probe was worth pursuing. Absolutely not. There are some moments that are troubling and concerning, but those moments are based on like some of the racist comments that get sent to me. She says she's received numerous threats. We have people that are still so ignorant, but that reality will not deter me from my work. Nearby the pavilion where Willis is handing out backpacks, East Point resident Gail Alexander says it felt like a slap in the face when Trump and his allies tried to interfere with Georgia's election result. Oh, it made me mad. Really, really mad. Alexander says she's grateful her district attorney took on this investigation, but she's not confident anyone will ultimately be held accountable. I'm going to be honest with you. If it does, it will surprise me. Truly. 
If a grand jury does return an indictment this week, the path ahead will be long and uncertain, both for Fonnie Willis and potentially former President Trump. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. Colombian singer Carol G is out with a brand new surprise album. It's called Mañana Será Bonito Bichota Season. It's a follow-up to her record-breaking February release, which was simply called Mañana Será Bonito. This new album features remixes as well as brand new music and comes as Carol G kicks off her first U.S. stadium tour. NPR's alt-Latino host Ana Maria Sayer has this review. So I wasn't sure what to think about this one because I feel like generally when an artist comes straight out of the gate with a kind of bonus record after they've released a big album, it doesn't quite hit all the time. But I must say, Carol G coming back with her bonus Bichota season is actually quite fun. She really does a lot of sonically divergent things on it that she didn't quite get to cover on the first record, although that too hit a lot of good points. And so uh, this one was really fun to listen to. A lot of very exciting collaborations. That was Provenza, the Tiesto Club remix. I first heard this track when I was biking home from work and I was like, I need to turn around right now and get myself to the club. This is such a fun song. Provenza has been a single off of the album for a while now. It's had two separate summers that it's been able to run in, and it's always been kind of, I think to me, a track for dancing, for being out with friends, for summertime. And the Tiesto Club remix really takes it to a whole nother level. I must say, I would not have expected to love it this much, but I do love how she's been playing a little bit more in the EDM space. A lot of Latin artists have been, and something about Latin rhythms and a nice EDM bass drop just actually marries perfectly, especially on this track. That was the collaborative diss track coming from Carol G and Peso Pluma. I would love to tell you the name, but I can't say it on the air. This collab has been teased for quite some time now, and this is absolutely not what I thought would come out of the two coming together. Beso Pluma has been notoriously open to doing reggaeton, but most of the time sticks in the regional lane. So to hear the two of them together on this track was really cool. His vocals work really, really well on a reggaeton track. They're so unique, they're always interesting to listen to, and the two of them together I just actually really enjoyed. That was in NPR's alt-Latino host, Ana Maria Sayer. Carol G's new album, Mañana Será Bonito Bichota Season, is out now. Oh, 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 oh,
is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. A nice Monday evening, breezy, still warm, 82 degrees now. Got some clouds moving in for the night. Temperatures moving back to about 68 degrees. And then tomorrow, wet. Could have rain, maybe a few thunderstorms pushed around by a strong wind. Only about 73 degrees tomorrow. By Wednesday, partly sunny skies should make it to the upper 70s. It's 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And Cityside Subaru, featuring the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. It's a Subaru summer.